You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric, and if you are new to the podcast, then please take a moment and consider subscribing, whether you're listening to this on audio or watching this on YouTube. You probably know how to use technology. You're probably going to enjoy what you hear. So stick around for a while, hit that subscribe button. It's super easy to do. And if you do enjoy what you're hearing or watching today, then head on over to Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave the podcast a five-star review because it helps us communicate to the lizard people over at Apple that we're doing some great things over here. We're bringing value. People are digging it and they start bumping us up the algorithm. And then we start getting more listeners and more people get value and things happen and bada bing, bada boom, you know what I'm saying. So head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave the podcast, a five star review. And if you are somebody who is interested in finding the best quality supplements, nootropics, you're a health nut, you're a biohacker, you want to optimize, or you're just looking to boost your health, then head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download a copy of my free supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient on how to find the best quality supplements and nootropics on the market today, because let's be honest, the supplement industry is a $100 billion industry and 99.9 billion of that gets flushed right down the toilet because these companies, you know, they cut corners, they use fillers and preservatives and excipients. And, you know, some of these supplements you're buying, like the vitamin C's and the fish oil and the multivitamins, they're filled with all kinds of these toxic fillers and you're not really getting, oh, and when they do some quality supplement tests, they find that you're actually not getting the actual amount of the nutrient that you are in fact paying for. So the supplement industry, it's the wild west. There's a lot of junk in these supplements. So if you want to find the best quality stuff on the market today, um, then get this guide because you will know exactly what to look for in all the supplements out there, especially if you're buying stuff on Amazon, GNC, all those places. Okay, cool. With that, let's start today's podcast. We have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Gupreet Pada. Dr. Gupreet Pada is a physician out of St. Louis. He's the founder of the Prada Institute specializing in diabetes management, pain management, and addiction. Dr. Pada, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This should be very interesting. It's gonna be a fun one, man. I'm uh, I'm super excited. We were talking a little bit of it, uh, a little bit before we got started, and I was telling you that I find that the specialties that you have um, they're so interesting how they kind of come together, and you have found a through line in how to successfully treat these things that are common issues, you know, diabetes, metabolism, pain, um, and then of course addiction. And you have found a through line to be able to successfully treat all of these uh, conditions. And I wanna get into all that, but before we do, I would love for you to tell the Holistic Nootropics listeners your story. What, what actually brought you to uh, having such a profound interest in practicing medicine and practicing medicine in the way that you do? Yeah. So I, I have a kind of a, a bizarre background. I actually didn't grow up here. Um, I've got a U.S. accent while we're talking, but um, that's not necessarily always the case. I, I grew up in India. I, I speak fluent Punjabi and Hindi, um, and I still fl speak fluent Punjabi and Hindi. Um, I grew up in India at the border between Pakistan and India uh, in the state of Punjab. I'm Sikh. When I came to the U.S., I was the only little brown kid 
with a turban in an all-black school living in the projects. And so I was a total outsider. I couldn't speak the language. And then eventually when I got to junior high, I, we moved to the county and I was the only little brown kid with a turban in an all-white school. And now I could speak English, but I was totally different than everybody else. So I had to create my own um, paradigm, my own worlds to figure things out. Um, and I loved the concept of business, but I loved the concept of science. So and I was always trying to meld the two of those together. Um, and so I ended up studying a lot um, because I wasn't as social as, as other kids. And I became initially a, a bit of a hacker. Uh, and I did some of the earliest Trojan horses that you've ever heard of. And I was getting right into the DMARCs and, and, and pinging phones and trying to figure out lines and all kinds of crazy stuff and got myself in a lot of trouble. Uh, because I was a pretty good hacker, I got caught eventually. And uh, then I was banished from using computers for the next four to six years, uh, which was probably the best thing that ever happened for me because that forced me to go into medicine instead because I was gonna go into computer science because I love technology, but now I couldn't use a computer unless I you know, had certain clauses that I, I had to do. And so I decided, well, I'll just do science because I love it so much. So I went to medical school, um, loved the mechanics of things, loved the chemistry, and ended up uh, in, in surgery, and then ended up in anesthesia, and then ended up in pediatric anesthesia, and eventually into pain. So as I was treating my patients that were <coughs> patients, I kept trying to figure out, you know, here I am practicing in the urban core, trying to give back to my community. And I'm looking at these patients and I'm going, what makes them have so much discomfort? Why do they have so much pain and what's going on? Um, and as I was trying to figure that out, something else struck me odd. And that was, why is it that they're so unhealthy? I mean, what, what's going on with their unhealth? And why are so many of them have addictions? And, you know, why are so many of them overweight? And I couldn't figure it out. And I, and I kept looking and this population was relatively poor. I'm like, how is it that poor people can get overweight? They don't have that much money. I mean, how is it that they're, they're getting there? And then I realized it wasn't, it wasn't that they were having a ton of money and eating a ton of food. And it wasn't that they were having no money and eating a ton of food. What it was, was they were having no money and they were eating the absolute worst food. And then I tried to figure out what, how that was impacting. I did blood testing, all kinds of stuff and met metabolism workups. And I ended up concluding that it was the metabolic inflammation that they had. And that was the common thread that bound pain, diabetes, and addiction together. If you get rid of the inflammation, all three of those improve. And if it gets, if all three of those get, if all, if in, inflammation gets worse in the brain, the metabolic inflammation, then it, all three go up. Um, and so you and I had had a conversation because I think what what intrigued you was, I, I said, you know, it's we don't treat and we don't recognize addiction in the way that it should be recognized. And I think that some of our basic theories of addiction might be a little bit off. We don't spend enough time trying to figure out, um, could there be significant other causes of people's addiction? It's not necessarily just that there's a drug there uh, because that drug, there are drugs everywhere. Um, I'll give you an example. During the Vietnam War, uh, about 40 to 50% of the folks that were deployed in the Vietnam War had experimented with um, opium, with heroin. 
And we were convinced that when we repatriated these folks, they would come back to the United States and we'd have zombies walking the street in the U.S. And lo and behold, we didn't have zombies walking the streets in the U.S. The vast majority of patients of these people that had been deployed came back and were never addicted. It was about 5% of them that had addiction. Our model of addiction is based upon a study that was done on rats. And what we did was we took rats and we put them in a cage. And on one side, we put water. And then on the other side, we put morphine. And we watched what happened. All the rats ran around the cage, drank the water, drank the morphine, went back to the morphine, drank, 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 till they passed out and died. So our theory was, well, if you give rats morphine, if you give humans a, a substance that they can abuse, they're going to overdose and die. Um, but that's not what happened when these Vietnam vets came back. So they redid the study on the rats, and they and this time they put a giant cage. They put the morphine on one side, they put the water on the other. And in between, they put all kinds of cool stuff for the rats to play with. Other rats for them to have sex with, rats to play with. They put um, turn wheels, they put mazes and all kinds of stuff. None of those rats died. None of them even hardly used the morphine. Um, and so what it was, was the paradigm within which they lived determined their outcome. Um, yeah, the rats tried the morphine, but that wasn't what they wanted to do. They wanted to have more fun hanging out with their friends. They wanted to have social interaction. So that, that's one of the fundamental flaws in a lot of our studies is we, we, we lose track of that human connection and, and we, we miss it. Um, it's the loneliness that, that has a major factor. And there's a whole host of other things that we can go through, but I mean, that's one of the things I, I, I got to get people to recognize right up front. It's metabolic inflammation. It's the paradigm within which we live. And it's all these other factors that, that become very important. Wow. That, I, man, that's so interesting. Like all of those different pieces, because, because what you laid out was a very convincing argument as to why are why so many things in our health system are not correct. Why our weight loss paradigm is not correct. First things first, why our uh, approach to addiction is not correct because, you know, like I say this all the time, um, you know, when it comes to like weight loss, for instance, um, you know, and why things like weight watchers and calorie counting, all this stuff fails because you know, we have this idea with, uh, with overweight people and obese people, oh, they, they just eat too much. If they just ate less then they would, they'd lose weight. And I can, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure I eat more than most overweight people in a day easily. I eat a lot of calories. I don't count, but I eat a lot. And I know plenty of overweight people who they like, they starve themselves, you know, and then, you know, they'll get to like the end of the day and then they'll binge eat, um, you know, maybe a, a giant share of their calories, but you know, there's so much more at play and inflammation is such, uh, I, I think, a bastardized term that we use in the wellness community to kind of like describe so many things, but it actually is a very specific function in the body. Um, and then you pair that with this idea of where addiction comes from. You could even maybe throw that in with food addiction. Again, you know, people who have food addiction who are overweight, 
it's not because they're not trying to lose weight or it's not because they, they just have a very bad relationship with food. And a lot of times it comes from pain, whether it's trauma or physical pain, it comes from stress. You know, we all know this idea of stress eating, especially if you are eating in a stressed out state in a fight or flight state, your digestion doesn't work properly. Your metabolism doesn't work properly. Um, and then of course you're going to be more inflamed. Um, and so your whole metabolic system, all your whole metabolic machinery is off. Um, and then, you know, you throw, in that whole addiction piece, which is, you know, take, take a person's joy, take the things that they live for out of their life and then see, see that they don't turn to, you know, a foreign substance. They don't turn to an outside, whether it's morphine, whether it's, you know, whatever the example is for somebody, for some people, it's alcohol, for some people, it's gambling, for some people, it's sex, for some people, it's food, for some people, it's, you know, heroin, whatever it is. Um, so I, I can see the through line of where, if you want to kind of wrap it up in a bow, of course, inflammation makes sense. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about when you say inflammation specifically, like what you mean physiologically by that. Cause again, I think it's, I think it's a term we hear a lot, but we just don't understand what it is. Yeah. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'll, I'm going to back up one step because I think it's really fundamental for us to understand exactly what we mean by the word inflammation. So inflammation is the body's response to an external threat. Um, and that's simply at the most basic element. Inflammation is the body's response. It creates a chemical or mechanical or cellular response or neurologic response to a perceived external threat. The threat could be something that could injure the body or injure the cells or injure the tissues. Um, so there's there's all of this stuff. And, it, and we've we just, like you said, bastardized the term and nobody really knows what it means until you start to break this apart. So the typical inflammatory response comes from our immune system. And there are some people that become hyper immune to peanuts and we, they have peanut allergies and they have an inflammatory response to that. There's some people that have an inflammatory response to um, gluten product. And so they they're gluten intolerant and some of them have celiac and some of them just have severe gluten intolerance. There are some people that recently, um, when they get viral infections, the most recent uh, viral out pandemic that we had, um, very interestingly, uh, triggered a very interesting reaction and it was a cascade of inflammatory materials that went out. Um, and some people did much worse than others. And you might ask yourself why. And I'm not trying to, th this is not a discussion of uh, COVID politics or anything like that. This is just a mechanical discussion of inflammation and why certain patients with COVID did a lot worse than others. We know that most of those patients were overweight that did worse. We know they were older. Um, and what you probably may not have realized was that a lot of them had insulin resistance. Now, insulin is a hormone that's produced by our body. And I'm going to bring this all together. So insulin is a hormone produced by our body. In the presence of sugar, insulin is produced by our pancreas to shovel sugar into our cells. And once our cells get full, because they can only hold a certain amount of glycogen, which is a carbohydrate, everything over about 2000 kilocalories of glycogen turns into fat. So essentially, if you're not 
taking the glycogen out of your system every day by some form of exercise or activity or, me or mechanical force, like you're doing something, you end up accumulating glycogen. So the next time you see some sugar, you have insulin produced and that sugar goes right to your cell, your glycogen sto stores are full and the insulin says, well, I gotta put it somewhere, I'm gonna put it in fat. So for most people, insulin is a fat storage hormone rather than a pure glucose clearance hormone. So every time you hear the word insulin, you think fat storage. And so as you start to increase your fat storage, your fat's smart and says, hey, I gotta tell my brain that I'm full. I don't need any of this. So it produces another hormone that goes to your brain called leptin. Leptin says, hey, brain, I'm full. But after a while, the brain becomes insensitive to the leptin. Because if you keep pounding leptin at it, it doesn't see it anymore. It becomes, uh, it becomes resistant to leptin. And you pound more and more leptin up and it's directly proportional to your fat mass. So the more fat mass you have in your abdomen, the more leptin you produce, the more leptin resistant you get. Well, that sounds like it's okay. I mean, what's it gonna do? Well, leptin is a potent cytokine. A cytokine is something that works on other cells and it specifically works on the inflammatory cells and it causes a severe inflammatory cascade. So it makes you more likely, if you're facing an outside threat, to have an overwhelming inf inflammatory response and your body starts to immediately shut down. Your lungs fill with fluid, your brain goes fuzzy, and you have this overwhelming inflammatory response. So how did this all start? Now let's look back at the history of fat. The Drosophila, which is a fly, has a fat body and it has a primitive fat body and that's where all like it, it evolutionarily if you look at it that dorsophila fat body is the equivalent of the bone marrow in the human the liver in the human and the visceral fat in the human so it's all three in one it has three components and it tells you right away that fat and your immune system are tightly interwoven and it's m1 and m2 macrophages and they're innervated through the nervous system. And so fat is a very, very active compound. It just doesn't sit there. It's an active producer of hormones and it actively participates in your response to external threat through inflammation. Now, it just so happens that a lot of it sits in our gut because it used to be that we would eat crappy food. You know, when we're hunting dinosaurs, we'd eat rotten meat or not dinosaurs, but when we were hunting uh, mastodons, we would eat rotten meat. And we needed to know that it was bad and we would create an inflammatory response so we didn't all die. Um, and e even if you look at primitive, primitive humans, the reason why we did really well wasn't because initially we were great hunters. We were great scavengers. What we did was we would go to the hunted sites and we would look at the leftover carcasses and those animals couldn't gain access to the cranium, but humans could because we could take the skull of an animal that had already been dead for three days and we could break it in half and get all the fat out of it. And that's how we survived in Paleolithic times. We were scavengers. Um, and, but that we, we got used to eating rotten meat and our immune systems in our guts became hypersensitive and, and that's, that's the origin of why we have so much inflammatory response that's interwoven with, um, with fat cells. And so that's, that's kind of the, the backstory of inflammation. So now the, the front story, now, now what happens going forward? So we now have an evolutionary mismatch. Um, 
we spent our entire evolutionary history until until 12,000 years ago, till the farming revolution. We spent our entire revolutionary history, evolutionary history, not having enough food. We we were constantly starving. We would go days without eating. In fact, a routine meal is something that didn't happen till about 60 or 70 years ago. We didn't discover breakfast till the 1940s. The best meal of the day is just purely, uh, it's just verbiage. Um, it doesn't mean anything. And people didn't have breakfast 100 years ago. It didn't exist. Um, and so we've got this situation that we have an evolutionary mismatch. Our genetics are hardwired to live in a starvation phase. So every time we're exposed to food and we eat it, we store as much as we can because we don't know when we're going to get our next meal from an evolutionary perspective. But we have such a surplus of food that we have a problem. And I'll, I'll, I'll make this a little bit more poignant for us. So in the 1920s and the 1930s and, and in that area, we had this thing, the Dust Bowl, occurring in Oklahoma and in the Midwest and in the Southwest. So we had overplanted and we had destroyed our crops and we had this huge Dust Bowl going on and people were dying. Um, the federal government became very worried that the U.S. could not defend itself if there was an act of war. And the vast majority of people that they would try to recruit into the armed forces simply were so malnourished that they couldn't qualify. So the brilliant idea was, well, we've got a surplus of food in the Northeast, but it's regional. And we have a deficit of food in the Southwest. So why don't we do this? Why don't we learn to process this food, send it down on trains and give it to the people in the Southwest and we'll subsidize it. And that was the origin of food stamps. The reason why we have food stamps initially was because we didn't have enough people to qualify for the armed forces because they had sarcopenic wasting. We have the opposite problem now. Now in 2021, 2022, when you try to recruit somebody into the armed forces, the reason why they can't qualify is because they're too fat. The exact opposite reason. Uh, and this happened in 60, 70, 80 years. And no wonder our genetics haven't caught up to this evolutionary mismatch. We're used to an environment where there's no food. Um, and we have a surplus of everything all the time. We eat from the time that we get up to the time that we go to bed. And that's not how human existence eats. That's not how it lives. You're not supposed to have six meals a day. You're not supposed to have three major meals and three snacks. That's made up stuff. And the higher continuous dose of insulin that we are exposed to from all of this small eating, the more fat accumulation you have. So what happens is that's part of it. Um, and then our big food companies, they trick us into eating more. And I'll give you an example. So I'm sure you've heard of high fructose corn syrup, right? Yep. Okay. So high fructose corn syrup should be 55% fructose, 45% glucose. Because if you take a sugar molecule, it's a disaccharide, half of it, 50-50, is supposed to be glucose and, and fructose. But high fructose corn syrup is supposed to be 55% fructose, 45% glucose. The reason why is because we process it and make it out of corn. And that's where the vast majority of corn goes to. Uh, it goes to the production of high fructose corn syrup. But we, you know, it's subsidized and the production of corn is subsidized to make this stuff. And it would be okay if we were just doing 55-45, but 
that's not what we have in our sugary, sugar-sweetened beverages. It's actually 58 or 60, 65%. Why would that be? Why would these companies spend extra money to further refine the fructose more than what would naturally or unnaturally occur? Why would they spend the extra money? Well, it turns out that glucose versus fructose have two different effects in the body. Fructose activates the dopaminergic receptor, which is a feedback loop for addiction in the nucleus accumbens, and glucose doesn't. Glucose acts more in the serotonergic system. Glucose kind of makes you feel good, but it doesn't make you Jones. And the problem is that if you have a sugar-sweetened beverage and you got all this blast of fructose, you want another blast of fructose a few hours later. And that's why kids that get hooked on these sugar-sweetened beverages have three, four, five of these beverages a day, six of them. Mm-hmm. And the companies know this. And it's very interesting to me because it's cheaper to go to Walmart, which is the largest recipient of food aid in, in the United States, because that's where people spend their, their food coupons. Um, it's cheaper for you to go to Walmart and buy a soda than for you to go to Walmart and buy water. And so that's a problem. They know that they, once you get hooked on the sugar, you're going to buy everything else in the store. And, and, and that's not because they're doing it on purpose, but that's just the mechanism by which this has ended up. I, I don't say that this is some sort of nefarious conspiracy, but it's the end result is that um, things work out in this way to, produce, to increase the consumption of food and sugars. Um, and then there's other things like Alzheimer's. You know, Alzheimer's is really uh, type three diabetes. It's, it's diabetes of the brain. And people talk about severe neuroinflammation in the brain with all these white cells and glial cells in your brain. But I'm not sure that most people realize this, but the, there's a hormone, uh, not a hormone, there's an enzyme that breaks down tau protein Tau protein is the stuff that we say in Alzheimer's is excessive in the brain and it's clogging up the brain. Well, that that tau protein is broken down by something called IDE. IDE is insulin degrading enzyme. It degrades insulin and it degrades tau protein. If you have too much insulin, you can't break down the tau protein. So my guess is that the tau protein is up there as a protective mechanism and we can't break it down because there's too much insulin because these people are insulin resistant. They're Mm. type two diabetic or they're Alzheimer's, which is type three diabetes. Um, And so that's that's my working assumption is that that's what's triggering part of this. They've had a a hyperimmune response and the brain is trying to protect itself with putting patches of tau protein in, very similar to atherosclerotic heart disease. When you have atherosclerotic heart disease and you have these atheromatous plaques and you see cholesterol in them, that cholesterol is not causing the problem. That cholesterol is there because it's a immune modulator and it's present because you've damaged the intima of the vessel. Mm-hmm. And that's how the body tries to patch it up. It uses that cholesterol to try to recover it. So, you know, that that's why we have this misconnection. We, we think that high cholesterol is a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. High cholesterol in an atheromatous plaque is probably a marker that you have severe pre-existing inflammation and that cholesterol has not been removed. It's kind of the band-aid that's, that the body's put on it. 
not that the, the cholesterol itself caused the original problem. The cholesterol is deposited there because you got a bigger problem. You had a leakage and you had a bunch of white cells that came into the area and they patch up the area with, um, with, with this cholesterol. And that's yeah, the best the recovery. The best analogy I've ever heard for that is like the fire department where uh, like the whole thing with cholesterol is, you know, like blaming cholesterol for heart disease. That's like blaming the fire department for a fire they're putting out. Like yeah, the cholesterol exactly. is there, but they're putting out a fire that was caused by some inflammatory compound. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, seeing the ambulance rushing to the site of an accident and saying, well, it was the ambulance that caused the accident. No, the ambulance is there picking up the victims. It shows up with a flashing light because that's how it works. But if you limit and so if your theory was that it was the cholesterol causing the problem and you gave people statins to reduce your cholesterol, or if you decided that the ambulances were the problem and you put out all the ambulances out of business, you still have the accidents. And, and that's the problem. You still have the accidents occurring and now your recovery mechanism is worse. And that's why patients said, some patients, not all, but a, a chunk of patients who get put onto statins actually have other complications from cholesterol that's not going in the right direction. It's not going to the right place, and they're more likely to become diabetic. They're more likely to lose their testosterone production. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to lose their estrogen production. And you got to realize that cholesterol is very healthy for your brain, and so these patients end up with more cognitive impairment. Um, now, certainly statins have benefit for a population of patients that have hypercholesterolemia that's familial, it's a genetic defect. Um, but if you're in your 60s and 70s, I'm not sure they have the same benefit and I'm not sure that most people should be on them. I think that that's gonna be a conversation that we look at and look back at. There was a, a beautiful Wall Street Journal article uh, last year and then Ashok Malhotra uh, in uh, England did all kinds of wonderful reviews on this. Um, on, on this 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 cholesterol paradox. So there's a lot of information coming out, but our cholesterol industry is so entrenched that it's very hard to, for people to change their protocols because their protocols have been embedded into our colleges, into our medical uh, systems, and into our um, into our you know into our unions essentially, our, our medical our medical uh, conferences, and into our medical teaching systems. And it's probably no surprise too that we have such stark cognitive decline in an older population. At the same time, we're putting that older population on the statins at record numbers because they have this bad cholesterol, right? And then, you know, I've noticed with, in my own experience with family members who are on these statins, like they never take them off statins. Once you're on statins, you're on them forever. They don't, you know, oh, your cholesterol is lowering, but we should keep you on for a few more months and kind of see where this goes. Oh, it's, it looks like it's improving, but we should see where it goes. And subsequently, you know, I'm watching these people deteriorate, you know, cognitively. Um, and it's like you said, like, Cholesterol, it's it's a basic micronutrient in your body. Like your cell phospholipid bilayer is made, contains cholesterol. You know, it's a it's a steroid, it, it converts into steroid hormones. Like you need this in your body. And the fact that, like you said, we have this so backwards. Um and we cannot get the like people are, I think, coming this a lot of this is coming to light with a lot of the 
you know, the keto movement, the paleo movement. And, um, you know, there's been a lot more, you know, uh, made of like higher fat diets to where I don't think the demonization is as mainstream as it might've been even 10 years ago, but still like, you know, I'm in biology classes and they still talk about good and bad cholesterol. They still talk about, and they don't, there's no context in it. I know it's very complex, but, um, you know, it's taking, uh, an act of God to get us out of like this paradigm. Um, and it's probably like our generation, like my generation who are finally realizing like, yes, I can have, I can have red meat. I can have egg yolks. I'm not going to have a heart attack next year. You know, uh, there's so much more to this equation than just, than just cholesterol. Yeah. And, and so that then begs the question, it wraps you back to inflammation. So what is inflammation and how do we really, as people in, um, as people, as, as individuals, how do we figure out what is going on with our cholesterol and what is going on with our inflammation and how do we determine that? Because a lot of our tests are not granular enough. They don't give you the information you need to figure this out. Um, and so people will go and they'll get a cholesterol panel and somebody will say to them, your LDLC is high and therefore you must be on statins. You must go on to statins. Well, that's not true. Um, what you really want to look at is something called LDLP, which is particle count of the heavy cholesterol. You want to, you want to see these tiny little particles and see how bad they are. Because you can have an LDLC that's high, but have a low LDLP. And LDLP is the thing that could cause your problems. And that's the thing that's associated with heart disease. Um, when you look at metabolic syndrome, which is a specific diagnosis, it requires five elements. Um, when they look at cholesterol, LDLC, that's not in there because there's no correlation with a high or low LDLC on heart disease outcome. There is a correlation with having a low HDL which is the protective kind of cholesterol. Mm. And there is a correlation with triglycerides, but there's no correlation with LDLC. But if you were to look for a correlation, it would be LDLP. And what I do is I look for that LDLP, but then I go further and I say, okay, what's my likelihood of having severe inflammation? And I look at insulin levels. I look at fasting insulin levels to determine something called LPIR or lipoprotein insulin resistance. And you, you want to look at that because that tells you how resistant is your liver to insulin and how sensitive are you and um, how much insulin is floating around your body at any given time. Um, and that's part of the workup. And I look at insulin and L LDLP as markers of inflammation in combination with other things like CRP, HSCRP. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at other markers like uric acid, which is typically associated with gout, um, most people think, well, if I have a high uric acid, um, I must have gout. Well, uric acid is a, you know, it's a protective mechanism. It's actually an anti-inflammatory. Your body is producing high uric acid sometimes as an inflammatory protection mechanism. So you have to understand it within the context of this. Um, so not everything is as simple as it appears. Just because you have a high uric acid does not mean that you're gonna end up with terrible, terribly inflamed joints. It may be that you just, you know, that, that's part of your protective mechanism. Um, 
What is the insulin marker that you look at specifically? I look at I look at two things. I look at C-peptide, which is the breakdown product of insulin. So when you produce a um, insulin prohormone, it breaks into two fragments, um, and it breaks partly into C-peptide and partly into insulin. The reason I look at both is that on patients that come to me that are diabetic, type 2 diabetic, and I'm trying to decide if I'll be able to reverse them or not, if they're already taking insulin and I measure that insulin, it's not going to give me much information. But if they're taking their insulin and I measure their C-peptide, that'll tell me what their intrinsic production of insulin is. And if they're producing any at all, I know I can get them reversed and I can get them reversed quickly because all it takes is about 800 grams of fat to come out of their pancreas. 800 grams is nothing. 800 grams is absolutely nothing, a fat reduction in, in the visceral bed, in the pancreas. And I can get them to get back to full insulin production. Uh, uh, and so it doesn't take much. And I measure C-peptide as the marker for how much is in there. Now, if they're not diabetic um, and, I'm just, and they're just obese, uh, they're on their way to diabetes uh, because that's all that means, they, because they have excessive fat storage hormone, um, then they're on their way to diabetes. I've measured simply their insulin because they're not on insulin, and that'll give me a clear picture. And then I met, and there's a calculation you can do if you've measured insulin plus NMR lipids, which gives you LDLP, and that gives you a score called LPIR. And the higher the LPIR score is, the more insulin resistant you are. And each little lab has their own thing. But once you get over about 50, you're very significantly insulin resistant. When you're over 50 on the LPIR? Right. Okay. And, and so what are, what, what are good numbers for C-peptide and for insulin? Um, I keep my C-peptide patients less than two. I keep my, um, you know, I, I like to, once I, or I like to see that they have some, but I don't want them to have like a C-peptide of, five or six or seven, that's really high. But if they have zero C-peptide, I know that they're not producing any insulin. Mm. But a healthy person should have a C-peptide a little bit above zero and less than two. The, and from an insulin level, on a, um, their insulin level should be typically less than 10. Um, and I know that the, the metrics that most laboratories have go all the way up to 25, but that's not real health. If, you, if you're fasting uh, insulin levels 25 or 24.5, that means to me that you're pretty insulin resistant. You're just on that slippery slope and we can still catch you um, before you fall off. Um, but and is that because the, the, I'm sorry, is that because the insulin, like it's not making it into the cell and it's still in the blood? Um, it always makes it into the cell. It's just, you're producing too much of it. Gotcha. You're just producing too much. And what's happened is the reason why you're producing too much is that the end receptor is not sensitive to that insulin. So you mm. produced a bunch of insulin from your pancreas. It went to your liver, it went to your muscles, it went everywhere. And um, your cells are not taking it in and you're just not, you're, it's not doing its job. The glucose is staying high, so the pancreas is pushing out more insulin. The glucose is staying high and so you're pushing out more insulin. And insulin is a pulsatile delivery system. It kind of clicks out and every time the, the pancreas goes, hey, this glucose is still high. I better push out more insulin. So it pulses that out for a prolonged period of time, which then results in a high serum level of insulin over, over a period of time. And it's the area under the curve, the total amount that was produced for a particular meal, that's the problem. And if you have multiple particular meals in the day, your total global amount of insulin production is extremely high for the day. And that gross amount of production is what's leading to the 
obesity and the viscerogenic fat accumulation. Got you. So um, I know I'm using those words, but I, I, I but I think your your audience will grasp that. No, I think I think yeah. you've I think you've like laid it out very easy. I mean, some of the stuff is is incredibly complicated inherently, and like you got to kind of do your own research a little bit. But I think the way that you've laid it out is very easy to understand. Um, I I, I want to ask you more about insulin resistance, but before I forget, I want to actually go back to something you mentioned earlier, um, because I think it's so pertinent to you know what this podcast is all about, which is you were talking about glucose and fructose. And you were saying that glucose is more, um, active on your serotonin and fructose is more active on your dopamine. And, um, I I think that's interesting for a million reasons, but I think it's especially interesting for, um, addiction, right? Because addiction can be tied into dopamine in many ways. And, you know, we talk about, you know, how much high fructose corn syrup is out there right now and how much fructose people are taking in regularly. Um, can you talk a little bit, a little bit more about your experience in addiction and the connections that you are seeing with, um, with fructose or high fructose corn syrup consumption? Yeah. So that's interesting that you bring that up. So there's a specific paper and it's it's called it's on hedonic substitution. It's what animals do uh, if they can't get one uh, type of addictive substance, they will substitute with another addictive substance. And so it's called hedonic substitution. And so this is what happens with patients. Um, If they are addicted to pain medicine um, and they can't get their pain medicine, they go to sugar or some other consumption that they do have access to, and they'll substitute for that. If they don't have access to that, they might substitute for crack cocaine. They might substitute for a different substance. The end result of all of the substitutions is the work on the hedonic drive, which is dopamine. And that's, it works in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, and that, that's where, that's your essential addiction center. Uh, there are other feedback systems that can also give you hedonic substitution. Um, You know, sex works on the hedonic system. Anything that makes you feel good works on the hedonic system. So people will sometimes get addicted to gambling because that produces a hedonic response. And that and the, the casinos know that. And so they design the casinos in such a way that you're so distracted and you constantly get these little blips of positive reinforcement um, that's very similar to um, those microbursts of, of cocaine and heroin you use. So you're substituting one type of addictive substance for another, um, whether it's sugar or whether it's porn addiction or whether it's um, opiate addiction or whether it's a gambling addiction. Uh, these are all hedonic outcomes. Um, now the, the bad part about it though, is that when you're eating a ton of fructose, there's another effect, um, fructose, when it goes through the, um, when it's absorbed in your gut, it preferentially goes to the liver first and it is more likely to be stored as fat quicker than even glucose is. Um, and it's, it's through a shunt pathway. And so you end up if you have a fructose, you're much more likely to get viscerogenic obesity, which will then secondarily cause you to become insulin resistant. And fructose doesn't require insulin to even get in the cell. So 
once it penetrates the cell, it quickly goes to fat, whether you have insulin or not. And then it actually fills up the, the cell with fat, which then makes your fat cell now insulin resistant. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a spiral out of control pathway. Uh, and it happens very quickly. In nature, you would get 50-50. You get 50% glucose, 50% fructose from a, from a table sugar. But that's not what we have. Um, we're, we're getting 65, 35 or 65. Right. And it's actually interesting, too, because you had mentioned that fat cells release these cytokines and essentially cause inflammation. And there's a lot of work coming out right now, the tie between depression and inflammation. So naturally, if you have more of these fat cells, um, you're going to, in theory, if you follow the logic, you should be more depressed. Um, but then at the same time, if you are eating more fructose, you're probably getting more fat cells because of, you know, the pathway you just laid out. And then that would lead to more depression. And then the depression leads to uh, more addiction. Is that would that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely does. And so these are um, these are this, this is almost like um, it, it's it's just an unfortunate collision of things because there's a little bit more interest here. So let's just say that um, you have a diet and you're eating this food and because you're eating a particular kind of food, your, um, your gut becomes more and better at digesting that food because your gut microbiome changes. You're the bacteria in your, butt in your gut change. And it just so happens that you are eating foods rich in carbohydrate. So a particular kind of gut bacteria starts changing and you get more and more production of those gut bacteria. Well, over time, they work on other gut bacteria next to them and they work on the intestinal system. And so it's very interesting because the enteric nervous system, which is your gut nervous system, connects to your central nervous system in your brain through the vagus nerve. And there's a connection that goes back and forth, that goes up and down. And that vagus nerve transmission and how you modify it really determines a big chunk of anxiety and depression. And so, and we know that because if I give patients, a ch get them a change in their gut bacteria, the amount of depression and anxiety that they have immediately drops. Sometimes you can do that with prebiotics. Sometimes you can do it with GABAminergic substances like GABA. You can feed people GABA and it makes them fall asleep within 15 to 30 minutes and calm. And the next day they'll have less anxiety. Um, there's a compound, um, there, there's, there's a doc, um, Dr. Parsley, Doc Parsley's. Um, and he's, I think he's a Marine. And he's come up with a combination of uh, nootropics basically that people consume and it puts them to sleep in about 30 minutes. And it's fundamentally founded on GABA. And what he's doing is instead of giving you a sedative, he's changing your vagal nerve transmission um, by changing the gut bacteria. And so yeah. we, we think that most antidepressants, historically, we've always thought that they work in the brain, but that's not true. They actually probably work in the gut. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of uh, serotonin uh, works in the gut. That's where most of it's found. And so the, most of the serotonergic uh, antidepressants work through gut-mediated health. Um, we've always thought, for example, metformin, which is a drug for diabetes. We've always assumed 
that it works because it works on some sort of receptor in the liver. But that's only partially true. The majority of the action of, of metformin is probably because it's a weak antibiotic and it works on gut bacteria. And that's why a lot of people, when they first start, have a lot of bacterial die-off and they have terrible amounts of diarrhea when they first start because they've got put onto metformin. Mm. A lot of people give it up and go on to stronger drugs, but if, if you can get through that first part, it works really well. It, what it's doing is it's changing your gut microbiome and making the absorption of these compounds different. Yeah. So that is, certainly carbohydrates are a major element in this inflammation. Certainly the viscerogenic fat accumulation is a major element, but there's others that are, um, that you, you can't like leave alone. And so that, that, let me, I want to mention one more that I think is so fundamental because if I can leave your, your audience with just a couple things, the other one that most people don't recognize, um, is that most of us think that vegetable oil is healthy. They think, oh, vegetable oil, it's got vegetables in it. It's gotta be healthy. You know, every time you hear the word vegetable oil, you should probably substitute the words industrial seed oil or industrial lubricant. Rapeseed. Uh, yeah, rapeseed. Uh, that's canola and mm -hmm. that's out of uh, Canada. And they had to change the name because it just sounded so bad to call it rapeseed. Yeah. Um, but in the 1800s, um, we used to have cotton gins. Uh, we used to have produced cotton before the 1800s, obviously. But in the 1800s, we got cotton gins. And because we started to produce so much cotton, we didn't know what to do with the cotton seed. And we had just tons of it. It was mounds of this stuff. And it would rot and it would smell terrible. And so farmers thought, well, maybe I could take some of these cotton seeds that I'm producing from this cotton and maybe I could feed it to my animals. And the animals started to get really, really fat and they got cognitively impaired and died. And so the Food Drug Administration and the folks for animal welfare said, you can't give animals um, this stuff because it has these oils in it, these industrial seed oils. You can't do that. Well, that's, that's vegetable oil is what it had in it. So they said, oh, well, we can't feed it to the animals. Maybe what we'll do is we'll turn it into home heating oil and we'll make, we'll make oil for lamps for it. But we got so much of it, we're gonna throw it in the rivers. Well, it would kill off the livestock in the rivers. So it actually became a, a, a big deal that you, this was now considered an industrial waste product and you had to handle it correctly. Well, we started to get more blubber uh, from whales and we didn't need the home heating fluid anymore. And so we had to figure out what to do with this stuff. And so lo and behold, in the 1900s, you know, early 1910, 19, 1920, um, there, there was a, the, the Nazis had figured out how to take liquid oil and add a hydrogen atom to it and make it into a solid oil. And so they hydrogenated it. And that was the origin of Crisco. Uh, there was a patent that was purchased and they started making Crisco. And then they, the next thing was, we need to figure out how to get housewives in the, in the United States to give up cooking with animal products and buy this Crisco. And so there was a whole marketing campaign that started on um, how to get people to, um, uh, to get rid of their lard and start using this new industrial seed oil. And that was the origin of, of this whole program. In, 19, in the late 1970s, that's when rapeseed took off and Canada really started pumping it a lot more. There was a lot more production and canola was, that, or was, was the name for that. 
Uh, and at the same time, we had a collision with the American Dietary uh, Guidelines, um, and they, they came out. And Ansel Keys had done a study and said, you know, vegetable oil is healthy, but saturated animal fat is not. Uh, and that's why we ended up saying eggs were bad at that point, because we saw these studies. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the Heart Association uh, was given a little bit of money and they, they put their, their sticker of heart healthy on all the vegetable oils. And it was based off of faulty data, faulty studies. Um, and, and so that, that, that's kind of the origin of obesity. So wh what is so wrong with vegetable oil, though? And here's, here's what's wrong with it. Uh, vegetable oil is an omega-6. Fish oil, which is a very similar oil, is an omega-3. If you take vegetable oil and you heat it or expose it to light, it turns into a trans fat. Trans fats are hyperinflammatory. But the thing is, with a vegetable oil that turns into a trans fat, you can't smell it and you can't taste it. You can't tell that it's rancid. And so if you cook with vegetable oil at a restaurant, which I used to own five restaurants, um, I quickly realized that they're not changing that vegetable oil after every fry. Every time you fry something, they're not changing it. It's still sitting there and you're reusing it hundreds of times. And sometimes you clean it and use it thousands of times. Well, that's all trans fat, essentially, which is hyperinflammatory. Well, why not omega-3? Well, omega-3, if you heat it just slightly, it smells like dead fish. It smells like an STD clinic. You can't even be in the same place with it. And so the issue is, is the vegetable oils come in clear canisters. They come in clear bottles sitting under fluorescent light. And by the time that you've even gotten it, you don't even know that half of it's already spoiled. And you can't really cook with an omega-3 because as soon as it heats up, it smells terrible. Um, but you can eat food with an omega-3 and that's actually healthy. Now, it all depends on where the kink in the carbon is. Omega-3 has a kink at the third carbon from the tail. Omega-6 has a kink at the sixth carbon. Um, and because of that, there's, there's some stoichiometry that's going on. You're more likely to generate trans fats with these kind of oils, but the, you can't tell when the omega-6 is rotten, but you can when the omega-3 is rotten. So they use omega-6 um, in, in processed food. And the other interesting thing, just as a side note, omega-6, when it's gone rancid and you can't tell, in rat studies, Rats actually prefer the flavor of rancid omega-6 over the flavor of regular omega-6. They preferentially eat the rancid. For some odd reason, it's more intriguing for them. We're very similar on our palate. We can't tell, and we may actually prefer the rancidity of a spoiled omega-6 because we can't tell the difference. Yeah. And so you have to, in order, for a human though, I measure patients' omega check level. I measure an omega-6 to three fatty acid ratio. And almost always, 99.9% .9 of my pain patients and my addiction patients and my obese patients, 99.6 of them have an abnormal omega-6 to 3 fatty acid ratio, which wow. is an omega check less than 5.4. And typically they come in with an omega check of 2.4, 2.3, 2.7. If it's less than 5.4, you got a problem. And you have severe inflammation in your cellular wall and you're filled with trans fats. And it takes 12 to 18 weeks of changing your diet and getting rid of the omega-6 rancidity and adding good quality omega-3. And, and so it, as you do that, 
it improves because you got to realize that these omega sixes and threes are part of your cellular wall and they make up a lot of the myelin that's in your brain. And if you have trans fats in there and it's hyper inflamed, you have white cells attacking you. Um, you can't think right. Yeah. Once you clean it up, then the transmission is, is cleaner. It's better. And you have less neuroinflammation. And to actually tie this back into how we even started this conversation, you know, why are there, why are there obese homeless people um, or why are there obese poor people? Um, it's because all the cheap food is filled with these vegetable oils. Yeah, because you know? they don't they don't spoil. You, they don't spoil. They spoil. You just can't tell that they're spoiled. So yeah, yeah. When, once you create acellular carbohydrates, you take real food, you compress it, heat it, burn it, and you're left with the carbohydrate. You flush it full of rancid vegetable oil and you make bars out of it and you call them cookies. And, and, and things that are snacks and you feed people those snacks, you got a problem. Yeah. And that's like what, what I tell people, like, you know, the easiest thing you can do to fix this problem, or at least like get yourself on the right path is when you go to the grocery store, avoid the middle of it. Just stay on the peripheral because in the middle is where all the processed food is. That's where all the vegetable oil is. And that's where all the high fructose corn syrup is. And if you just take those two things out of your life and I, again, I'm with you on this hundred percent. I say, stop cooking with oil, cook with butter, cook with ghee, cook with uh, lard. You know, like my favorite thing to do is to make bacon and save the grease, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, tallow, any of that stuff cook with that stuff. But the easiest thing is just cook with butter. You know, um, you'll save yourself a lot of inflammation. Yeah. So I'll give you another example. Um, olive oil, the healthy oil in olive oil is oleic acid. Do you know that oleic acid where there's more oleic acid than in an e equivalent compartment of, of olive oil? It's in pork. It's in bacon. <laughs> that's oleic acid that you're getting. Mm. Uh, and that's why, you know, that saturated animal fat is pretty decent. Um, so I, I work in the urban core. So I'm dealing with patients that really don't have much resources. I'm working in communities um, that are destitute. Now, add another layer of complexity to this. And let's say that you live in, a, in an area that has a lot of gun violence. Let's say that you live in an area that doesn't have grocery stores. Let's say that you live in an area where you fear for your life and you don't go outside. And all of a sudden, you don't produce vitamin D because you're not outside. You don't have exposure to it. You don't have a grocery store. And so all you're getting is processed food. And most of it's filled with vegetable oil that's rancid. And most of your food is a sugar-sweetened beverage because you can go get that and it's cheap. Um, and most of your food is a carbohydrate and there you're only going to get shelf stable things, um, because you're not going to have access to fresh meat and fresh anything really. And you compound all that. And this explains this, this cycle of poverty and violence. Um, we've seen that in individuals have severe neuroinflammation, such as people that end up in prison. Um, it, it's improved when you improve their diet. You've shown, we've seen that. I work with a, a group called Exoneration Nation, which is to deal with just helping prisoners who have been exonerated uh, for crimes that they didn't commit. And when they come out, a lot of them um, are so neuroinflamed and have such bad other issues. And a lot of them are diabetic or pre-diabetic. Uh, they have become cognitively impaired 
and you know they they they've lost their ability to think over time because they're in a controlled feeding situation and their controlled feeding situation is also very similar to the controlled feeding situation in most of our schools because they all follow, follow the American dietary guidelines which is also very similar to our controlled feeding situation that we have our elderly in in nursing homes because they follow the American dietary guidelines and those dietary guidelines right now promote about 30 to 40 percent carbohydrate in every meal and promote the use of vegetable oil mm. and and they de-promote they they are opposed to people having eggs and they're opposed to having people eat meat uh, and so those are those are some of the problems that we see um, and in the community that I deal with you know you have these little kids who start off brilliant when they're two three years old by the time that they're seven or eight, they start to lag a little bit. And by the time they're nine or 10, they're having major ADD issues in school and they can't concentrate. And it, they started off brilliant. And now they're nine or 10 and they can't function in school. They can't hold their attention. Um, and pretty quickly they get engaged into the criminal justice system because you know they, they got nothing else to do. And they're neuro inflamed, so their judgment skills are very poor. Um, and so it's kind of a circle of poverty and violence that you end up seeing. Wow. And breaking <sighs> that circle is what, what I'm trying to do in St. Louis. And I'm working with organizations here to do that. Um, you know, Dr. Pata, that's, um, th that's so interesting that you say that. And um, uh, I, I really believe that I'm very grateful that you're doing that work because just from this conversation, and I have a lot of these conversations, um, I, I think what you're doing, you, you, you understand what real health is. Um, you understand the correct physiology of it. And I really believe we need more people. Like when I hear people talk about health equity, it drives me crazy. Um, because what they mean by health equity is just giving poor people more processed food. And, uh, and it drives me up the wall or, you know, giving more, more doctors who are just going to prescribe more antidepressants and more, uh, you know, diabetes medication instead of actually addressing like what you're talking about, which are the seed oils, the inflammation, the high fructose corn syrup, you know, the, the, the corn subsidies, like these are, these are the real conversations that we need to have. And it's good that, you know, people like me and the wellness community are, are having that conversation. But what we need is we need the people who really need this help. Like you said, the kid who's brilliant at two ends up ADD at five and is on the streets, you know, selling crack at 13. You know, we need, we need these, we need these people to get that information. And, and I just hope that, you know, that there's more people like you out there that are really getting in these communities and, and spreading this message, because I feel like, you know, again, when I hear talk, when I hear, especially through this pandemic has driven me crazy about how COVID disproportionately affects, you know, communities of color and all this, which I don't doubt that it does, but there's so much more to that story. And I think what you're doing is you're actually addressing the most important part of that story. So I, I I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. It's, it's really awesome. And I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation. Cool. Yeah, the, the reason why it, it affects the communities of color is that they're much more metabolically uh, injured than Caucasian communities. Um, so I did a study, I paid for a study um, here in St. Louis, and we looked at nine square blocks 
of St. Louis City. And we said, okay, we're going to do a demographic analysis in this nine square blocks. And we're going to identify this population. We're going to look at what happens to this population. And then we're going to do a predict predictive study. And so I hired a statistician. I already knew the result, but I wanted somebody else to do it. And so our conclusion was that by 2030, by 2030, between 2030 and 2035, 97 to 99% of the African-American female population would be morbidly obese or obese in that population. Two thirds. What was that percent again? I'm sorry. Two thirds. Yeah. Two th it would be. No, no, no. 97 to 99% would be morbidly obese in that population. Two thirds of them would be full out diabetic. But the total diabetes rate would be closer to 85 to 90%. Of the two-thirds that was full-out diabetic, half to two-thirds of those would be in end-stage renal disease and on dialysis. And when you started adding up the numbers for the density of population, we ended up realizing that that subset, that 25% subset of population or so, would spend more money on dialysis treatment than the entire disposable budget for the state of Missouri. The entire budget. I mean, in a nine square block area on end stage renal disease, because people that end up with end stage renal disease on dialysis are being dialyzed three, four times a week. They can't work. So you, you, you gotta, you're going to have to take care of them. You're going to have to feed them and you're going to have to dialyze them. And a good chunk of them go on to amputations. So the healthcare expenditure is between thirty-five dollars to $60,000 a year in that dialysis and the miscellaneous healthcare. 12000 of that is in the insulin. Um, and then the loss of function and supplementation to, to keep, you know, to, to, to feed them is another about $30,000 a year. And so that's a full-time job. <laughs> and so if you start calculating that out for the density of population that we're looking at, the entire disposable budget, budget for the state of Missouri was in nine square blocks by 2030. And so it's, it's a disaster. And so it, I have a background in business also. I mean, so I, I love analyzing data and I have an MBA in finance. Um, and so I always look at the cost benefit ratios of things and trying to figure out how does this, what happens? What, what, how does this turn out? And can I predict how to make a change? So I'm working with organizations in that community um, to figure out ways to bring regional food production back to the community. We're trying to figure out ways to improve housing in the community, to be able to use hemp houses, uh, to, to get people housing that's appropriate and safe, to encourage people to have their own gardens, to have their own chickens, to start getting reinvested in the community. We have all the resources in the world in the United States. We really do. We have all the money, um, but we use it in the wrong way. Mm. And sometimes the incentive is perverted and we just don't realize it. See, the incentive in medicine is, for most pharmaceutical companies, it's if you cure a disease, you don't make much money because you cured it. So the incentive for pharmaceutical companies is to milk the cow rather than to cure the cow. They wanna make sure that they can keep making money for a revenue stream for a long time. And that's, you know, insulin's a revenue stream. I don't know if you know about insulin and how it started, but insulin was uh, produced by a Nobel, uh, somebody that won the Nobel Prize for it. 
and he made a deal with the companies with the, uh, with the uh, companies that sell insulin now and he said you know what i'm going to give you this patent for insulin as long as you make me one agreement you will forever keep insulin free because it's it's compassionate use and he said oh yeah that's what we're going to do we're going to this insulin is going to be free forever and as soon as they got the patent they got it working they decided to add a zinc atom to it and they charged for that insulin and they stopped producing the original free insulin and so sometimes our unintended consequences uh, can be a problem. And so you have to look at people's, you have to look at their drives, their financial, their financial drives. And so that I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what's, the, what's people's financial interest in this? And how do you figure that out? And how do you go from point A to point B? So I, I get to solve puzzles. And, and that's why I love doing this. I, I, was, I started off as a computer hacker. And I ended up being a biohacker. Um, I started off trying to analyze computer code and ended up trying, ended up, you know, trying to figure out this nexus of financial and, and medicine and how they, how they work together. Yeah. And, and then what, you know, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the diseases that, that keystone lock that has the biggest impact. And to me, the keystone lock is our dietary intake. It, mm -hmm. It's our, that, that's the keystone lock for our health is if we can fix our diets, 90% of our disease goes away. Yeah. And, and then, then we can go from there. Yeah. And, and I think going back to like, I think what you have to do is you have to keep it simple. You know, like we all look at this problem and it's just, uh, it's monstrous, you know, it's like, it's monstrous, but like, I think about it, what is the simplest things that I can give the most amount of people um, as far as like, how do you turn this around? Because the diet and exercise advice, it's, it's stupid. It's, it doesn't work for most people. It does nobody knows what that means. Diet, what diet? There's a million to choose from and, and, and I don't know what it is. If you say that to somebody, the chances that they're going to lose weight is one in 167. Mm -hmm. Eat less, move more is effective one chance in 167 to one chance in 212, I think. Yeah. So it's less than 1%. If you... If you instead you change your protocol a little bit, you can have about an eighty percent effectiveness. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that's what we do. We we we've we also recognize that human beings have this hedonic drive, and that hedonic drive for food is expressed as satiety. And so, unless you can get satiety with something, you're going to constantly be foraging for food, and you're mm -hmm. going to forage frequently. And so all of my systems are geared toward getting to that hedonic drive, getting to satiety and figuring out an economic way to do it and then getting people to quit snacking and getting people to only eat real meals and getting them away. It's actually, you know, and I was always surprised. So once I finally got my patients to the right place, they go, hold on, I'm saving a ton of money and I'm actually getting to eat better food. And, and because you can save a ton of money and eat better food if you're not having to have six meals a day, because those six meals a day are making you hungry for your next meal. And then you wake up in the middle of the night jonesing for ice cream. Yeah. So, you know, and, and another element of this is obviously sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, another there, there's other elements, activity and movement, so I, but, it, but it's yeah. not but they're not small. I mean, but they're not they're not your keystones. Your right. keystone is the frequency of, of feeding 
the keystone is get rid of the vegetable oil and the carbohydrate. Um, and then, you know, it, once you start to go down that road, a lot of the stuff falls in place because then yep. those create early successes. And you could cook ground beef and butter and it's amazing. And it doesn't oh cost that much. So, and because I work in the urban community, we actually have a cookbook that we designed just for our community. And we went out and we priced every grocery store in an area. And it turns out that you can eat for about three and a half to four bucks a day, very effectively. Yeah. Uh, and, and be totally satiated. And you can cook for a family of four for about $7 a day. And that's way less than what the typical SNAP benefits or food stamp benefits um, need. Then you have surplus cash and then you have that problem of, well, I got extra money. What am I going to do with it? Maybe I'll buy some candy bars. <laughs> right, so, right, um, right. But, you know, that's that's a whole. You got to start somewhere. You, you got to yeah, start yeah. somewhere. Now, yeah. I do love some of the programs um, that came out in the last year or two where the SNAP benefits go a lot farther. If you go to a farmer's market, there's mm. a subsidy that occurs. You get 25 percent more. Uh, and so there are some things that we're moving in the right direction, but the problem is that we're not moving as fast and as far as I'd like. And, you know, nobody in their right mind in a food company is going to go, I think that I'm tomorrow, I'm going to start encouraging people to eat less food and have less feeding frequency because I want them to be healthier. No, their job is to increase feeding frequency, increase the consumption and market share of their product and to make it more hyper palatable. And the only way they can do that is if you don't get satiety for prolonged periods of time. So we want you to feel really good and have that hedonic push, but then I want you to be hungry again in two hours. Mm -hmm. So you eat more. And so it's, it's part of the addiction model. Yeah. Well, Dr. Pata, this has been such a fun conversation, such an, I mean, amazing, interesting conversation. I really hope, I really hope people follow up and, you know, look you up, you know, you're doing amazing things in your area, but, um, if nothing else, like, like hold what you said as the standard for work, for how people decide to approach their own medical treatment, you know, ask their doctors, uh, you, you know, screen their doctors in a way that, they're talking about these things that they actually are looking at these specific, um, blood markers, like the insulin and the, um, uh, what was the other one? The, uh, LDLP, LPIR. LDLP, LPIR. And then the, uh, what was the one you said with the insulin? Um, um well that's LPIR, but the C peptide is C -peptide. The other, mar other marker and then a mega then check. But then, right. And then also, and then they make a check, but then also encouraging, you know, encouraging satiety, encouraging, you know, not just diet and exercise, but like high fat, high protein, lower high fructose corn syrup, swapping out omega sixes for omega threes, you know, using cooking with butter and not oil. Um, these are little, these are little fixes that can be done. And I just, again, I can't thank you enough for the work you're doing. You're doing it on the level that it needs to be done. And I just hope more people follow your lead. And, um, if anybody wanted to, you know, learn more about you, follow up with you, follow you on, on the internet, contact you, where's a good place that someone could, could do that. So since most of our conversation was addiction and, um, dietary, I'd recommend they just go to the websites that are, that are geared toward that, that we have, and they can reach me there. I, I don't charge people for for discussion. I mean, if somebody has a question, I'm happy to answer. Um, it's only if we have to physically see you and spend time with you. So sure, sure. we have www.addictionology.center. And then for the, for the, um, 
for the obesity diabetes thing, it's www.reversingdiabetesmd.com. Um, and those are two pretty good websites that have tons and tons and tons of data. Um, and there's video production and all kinds of stuff on there. Um, you know, you can always shoot me an email. I'm happy to chat and happy to give my two cents. Um, and and the, the goal is that, you know, we, we all need to get to that promised land. But we're as a society, we're no better than our weakest link. And so we have to fix our weakest link. We can't leave part of our society behind. So we have to bring everybody forward. And so that's why I'm in the urban core, because I feel like that's that and the extreme rural area are our two weakest links. Um, you know, we, we have the benefit of all of these cool things, but we haven't show we haven't included everybody in our society. And, and so it's I'm not somebody that's woke. <laughs> this is not a woke phenomenon. This is a genuine like desire to make sure that, you know, we, we have these capacities and we can bring people forward. And it's without the use of subsidies. It's 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 giving them the tools so they can do it themselves. Uh, and that's what a lot of my websites are about. You know, these are the things that you need to do. You can do it yourself. You can download the protocol. You don't need me and there's no charge for it. So do it. Totally. I love it. I'm going to put all those links in our show notes and in the description of the podcast when it gets released. And um, again, I hope people check it out um, because you're doing amazing work. So it's, it's so cool to um, if people follow up and, and utilize and check out those resources. Um, in the meantime, Dr. Pata, thank you so much for joining me today. Listener, viewer, if you enjoyed this podcast, again, follow up with Dr. Pata. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave the podcast a five-star review. If you haven't done it yet, make sure you subscribe because we have amazing conversations like this every single week in an entire library that you can binge on and get your holistic nootropics fixed. And for more things on holistic nootropics, all things nootropics, biohacking, nutrition, full body, body, mind optimization, head on over to holisticnootropics.com. Until next time, everybody. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain boosting info, in depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.